I want to welcome today's guests from Robert Pettyjohn Cleaning, Mr. Robert Pettyjohn and Katie Ruther. You guys, want to say a quick hello? Hello there, Lance. It's a joy to join you and the millions watching on their computer. Thank you, Robert. Hi, Katie. How you doing? Thank you. I'm good, Lance. How are you? Good, good. Well, you know, let's get started here. And for those that don't know, uh, Robert is one of our senior trainers. He's involved with our uh, certified mold assessor, mold remediation training, and he does uh, quite a few other things for us. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got involved with this indoor air quality industry? Lance just started by cleaning carpets. My wife, uh, Karen, and I were living in Kentucky at the time, and we were looking up at the light fixture on our uh, ceiling and saying, we're going to be here the rest of our lives, or we're going to do something else. So we had an opportunity to go to Hawaii. So we, we sold everything we had and bought two one-way tickets to Kauai and sold jewelry on the beach for a couple of years. And then, uh, like everybody should do, but, but then we had a little baby born over there, this little girl here to, to my right and to your left. Uh, little Katie was born over there on, on Kauai, and we couldn't imagine raising her far away from my mom and daddy or Karen's mom and daddy, Mr. and Ms. Chapman in Easley, South Carolina. So we came back to South Carolina, and uh, I, I did a few odd jobs, and one thing led to another. And I, I felt the, the Lord lead me to come up here to Southeastern Seminary to get a Ph.D. in world religions. But he obviously had other things in mind because we were stone cold broke when we got up here. I said, Lord, what are we going to do? I answered an ad in the newspaper. It said, clean carpets, make $800 to $1,000 a week. I said, well, that'll pay, that'll pay a few bills. So I started doing it. It was a carpet cleaning company is what it was. So I started doing that. And then one thing led to another. And I realized that I didn't know everything I needed to know. So I went, in, went looking for some other resources. And fortunately, I found them. But that's how we got started. Uh, cleaning carpets uh, in 1989 here in Wake Forest, North Carolina. You know, we, we've talked in the past about diverse backgrounds and, you know, where people are today and where they came from. So I just want to get this right. I, I'm visualizing it's the beach bum surfer becoming the doctor PhD, you oh, know, in, in a short trip. Well, we didn't, we didn't do we did a little bit of windsurfing, but not that other stuff like they do on the, in the pipeline in the North Shore of Oahu or any of these other big surfing venues. And uh, I, I was accepted into the Ph.D. program at Baylor University and also up here at uh, Southeastern Seminary, but I never enrolled. We were just too broke and I had to do something else. So it didn't it, I never became the doctor, but that's OK. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Katie, I, I know you were dragged through this, probably <laughs> kicking and screaming most of the way. And if, if you would like to tell us a little bit about your background, if you're comfortable with that. Oh, gosh. So I grew up uh, with the back seat of our minivan on the front porch to accommodate the carpet cleaning machine. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. Fond memories. <clears throat> Yeah, but I think I officially started working in the business when I was in third grade, pulling hoses. And as far as I know, I was the only third grader that had a sizable bank account. So I, I guess I, I appreciate the life lessons and um, responsibility that came with working at a young age. And I worked on and off, you know, went to college, tried to find a different career. And after college, I came back and work in the office a little bit, um, a little bit in the field. And I got married. We ran away for about four and a half years to California and decided this is probably where we really need to be. So we came back and have been ears deep in textiles for the last, I keep saying six years, but time keeps ticking. So it might be closer to eight years by now. Amazing. So here we are. Not okay. at all <laughs> uh, what you plan for your life, but somehow you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. All right. Very cool. Well, you know, I, I like to know a little bit more about the backgrounds, and a lot of our viewers, you know, want to know who the people are that we're talking to. So thank you both for that. 
So let, let's get down to it. Um, I know what you do is fairly technical as far as the technology that's used, the uh, methodology for cleaning. It's not just spraying a chemical on something and cleaning it. So how did you figure out how to do this? Did, did you take training or did you just reinvent the wheel or how'd you wind up doing what you're doing? Well, we got started uh, in our training because I had done some work the guys at the shop figured out the smartest one. So they sent me the worst, most difficult cases. And at this time I went and bleached the guy's carpet and made a big mess. And that was $650 that Petty John's did not have, but we had to max out our credit cards in order for that to happen. So we did it. So I figured I better get some training. And as a result, I asked around a couple of places and found out that there was a class at Sunbelt cleaning uh, supply house here in Raleigh. And the great Lee Pemberton from McKeesport, Pennsylvania, was the one who was teaching the class. And thankfully, I got the right teacher at the right time. And he told me everything I needed to do and to know in order to get started uh, properly. And I, I could not be any more thankful for that. So absolutely, training and education, there is no substitute whatsoever for that unless you have a bottomless bank account that can handle all your screw-ups. Okay. Well, well, with that, I, in, in the world of indoor air quality, which is where we all work under, uh, I know there's a lot of trade organizations and support groups and things like that. Did you ever try, or are you still working with those types of groups, trade associations, organizations that helped you through this? Uh, to back up to education for just a moment, the one of the fun full circle parts of being in a family business is while my dad took classes from Lee Pemberton, I think I was able to fully explore my love of upholstery cleaning from Lee's son, Jim, um, a few years ago. So, or, you know, many years later. So I think that um, their family business becoming full circle as our family business has become second generation is one of the beautiful little components that you don't just see everywhere. So that's, that's very well put. Yes, it is. But, but does that really mean that when you were in third and fourth grade, you were helping him with his homework? Uh, <laughs> <I don't> <laughs> You're exposing all our family secrets now. I just, just wanted to make it, make it clear for everybody where we were. Well, that one of the benefits of being at a, at a class like that is that you usually are associated with, with, with people that are where you want to be. And one of those people was a fellow named Chubb Safrit, S-A-F-R-I-T. He lived in Concord, North Carolina, right outside of Charlotte. And Chubb at that meeting told me, he said, Robert, if you, if you want to do this business, you do this and this and this and this. And I did that and that and that and that. And then one thing led to another. And now here, what is today's date? 24th. The 24th of what? March. March, March 24th in 2023. I'm being interviewed by the great Lance Eisen and the Normie crowd, along with my baby daughter, Katie. And I'm so very thankful to be here. But that would not have happened had I not been in the right training organization, doing the right things by people who knew what they were talking about. Well, I understand. And I thank you for that. And I understand that you've been a part of and some leadership in organizations, too along the way. That's that's where I was trying to go to with this, to kind of talk about your path to where you've gotten to now with the different groups, support groups, organizations, things like that that you've been involved with. That's, that's a, a good question. Well, you ask good questions, man. Thank you very, very much, Lance. Well, yes, both my wife and I have been privileged to serve as president of the Mid-South Professional Players Association, the finest regional trade association anywhere in the country, without question. My daughter Katie is on the board of directors right now at Mid-South. Uh, we were the founding members of the Association, Association of Drug Care Specialists that uh, is headquartered in Dallas, Texas. One of the charter members of that organization. I'm one of uh, just a handful of certified rug specialists here in, in the United States, the only one in the Southeast. Uh, I'm also uh, privileged to be a part of the Restoration Industry Association, where I'm one of about 125 certified water law specialists. 
in, in the whole country. And that's that's a real big a real big deal. So you begin to you begin whenever years ago we used to go get gas and we had to get pay for it inside the convenience store. And when I came home, Karen said, You went to the gas station, didn't you? I said, Yeah, how do you know? Because you smell like smoke. That's you remember that everybody smoked inside those gas stations. Well, that's the way it is now. You start to smell like the people you hang around. And fortunately, being a part of this national organization for mediators and microbial inspectors known as Normie, I'm beginning to smell like you, Lance, and I'm so thankful for that. I, I know there's a compliment in there someplace. I'm, I'm just not quite sure how far I have to dig for it. So I'm just going to kind of move on. And let's talk about indoor air quality as long as you talked about, you know, smells and things like that. I, You know, rug cleaners, carpet cleaners. You know, I've, I've seen these guys with their trucks and they go out and they spray some stuff on the floor and vacuum it back up and they're off to the next job. But why wouldn't they be more focused on how it's affecting the rest of the environment with indoor air quality? So, I mean, how, how do you view that component of what you do? Well, one of the benefits of being involved in an organization like Mid-South is that back in 1989, when we first started, we ran into a fellow. Uh, 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 his, his name is Dr. Michael Berry. He was in charge of the Research Triangle Institute and at the time was a, was a, a very, very close friend of the Mid-South Professional Cleaners Association. As a matter of fact, one of his uh, students, a guy named Donald Pumphrey from up in Brown Summit, North Carolina, did a, a cleaning of the Frank Porter Graham Child Care Center in Chapel Hill and discovered that the recidivism rate for people who got their, for, for the kids that were in that carpet cleaning, they got their carpets cleaned regularly was much, much, much less. They almost never, ever got sick. So Dr. Berry in his book called Cleaning for Health, I don't know if you know, people can see this. This is the one that uh, Dr. Gavin McGregor Skinner is very interested in working with right, right now. But he, he says in, in his book, some very, very powerful things about this, this business of cleaning. He said, in carpeted cleaning, uh, in carpeted buildings, check entrances. It is especially important for you to analyze how and where unwanted matter gets deposited inside. This matter can be wet or dry or oily when it rains or snows or whatever the case may be. But he also says something very, very profound. He said, with housekeeping, we manage and take advantage of the sink effect we find inside. Kitchens have a literal sink. If dirty dishes and garbage are allowed to build up in it, bacteria will proliferate and someone is likely to get sick. Some surfaces are better sinks than others, Dr. Barry says. Carpets and fabrics are very effective sinks. Pollutants stick on or fall into their fabric surfaces due to gravity or electrostatic attraction. Such complex webs of fibers can trap and hold pollutants for a very, very long time. Housekeeping that makes the indoor environment biologically clean promotes long-lasting health. We were fortunate in 1989 to be associated and to be uh, acquainted with Dr. Michael Berry. And even as my role with the uh, ICRC, I was fortunate to, to, to serve on the board of directors and, and the executive committee of that organization for six years, for crying out loud. But one of the people we... Uh, uh, met uh, was a, a, a brilliant fellow who worked with the Journal of Cleaning, Restoration, and Inspection. He wrote a, a, an article in, in called The Influence of Flooring Type on Allergen Levels and Airborne Particles. This thing right here, an amazing, John Downey is his name, an amazingly brilliant, brilliant fellow. But he says, and, and I'll just read one short sentence or two. In conclusion, the results outlined here do not support the common recommendations favoring hard flooring rather than carpet that are currently given to those with asthma and allergy concerns. Adds to the growing body of research that suggests no flooring type is definitely preferable over another. We hear so many people, Lance, as you well know, who say, rip the carpet out, take the carpet out. Well, no, the carpet is an effective sink. With every one square yard of carpet, there's 1.4 acres of surface area in that. That's a great sink or a reservoir, as Dr. Uh, Gavin McGregor uh, Skinner says. But that reservoir, that sink needs to be emptied on a regular basis. 
Hence, what we're here for today is we, in, we are impacting in people's indoor air quality in ways they will never have any, uh, any indication. So well, let this me, is the industry that does this, that allows us to do this, sir. Let me, let me toss up a, a softball to you guys, for you guys to take a swing at using a baseball metaphor here. Here comes the here comes the pitch. In most structures, what is the largest filter in that facility or home? Katie, uh, the carpet. There you go. Pretty much what you just said. I mean, it's a massive filtering system, and it's so important to address it the right way. It's crazy when the largest filter has been ripped out and replaced with a filter that can't hold on to anything like a hard floor that changes the whole maintenance protocol for the house, the whole level of expectation for the homeowner, for the inhabitants and their respiratory existence, in my opinion. But your opinion is right. And, and the fact is that that big sink has got, that filter has got to be cleaned and emptied on a regular basis. I'm sorry, nobody put a gun to your head and made you buy that carpet or buy that oriental rug, but still you got to maintain it. Nobody made you have babies. Nobody made you buy that house. But still, you've got to maintain it properly. Absolutely. And that was the whole purpose for asking that question like that. Um, you know, when you do take out the carpeting, it does change everything. The whole indoor air quality structure changes. So let, let's get a little bit more into the technology side of it. Could you give us some examples or demonstrations I know you have some videos that you were talking about in a previous conversation we had about carpeting and cleaning and things like that. That's, that's a very good question, Lance, because cleaning carpets really does impact the seven elements of indoor air quality. And those seven elements, of course, are particles, odors, gases, biopollutants, temperature, relative humidity, and comfort. That's how... You, you got to measure something somehow. So let's measure it with these standards, these criteria that uh, Mr. Hoffman and Normie have established as extreme and research over the decades as, ex, uh, as established as necessary elements of healthy indoor air quality. How does what we do impact healthy indoor air quality? Katie, how does, how does all that happen? How would you show that? I would, I, I would like to start with, reel it back a little bit and talk about why before how. I think the, one of the questions that is often overlooked um, when it comes to how are you going to clean my rug? Can you clean my rug? What are you, what are you doing? What, you know, why, why should I choose you over someone else is come back to why are we even doing this in the first place? And the, you know, Sunday school answer is indoor air quality, but the, there are other answers to those questions and <clears throat> Those are going to be very simple. Why do you do what you do? Because it's, it's important to your precious customers for, for one, but you've got to also understand what you're doing. Where does this rug come from? Where do these textiles come from? How did, did they come about even in the first place? And I think you may have a couple. We will show you a couple of videos, Lance, and your, your audience, too. They're, they're short videos. They're not going to last forever, but sometimes a picture says more, uh, what, a thousand words, 10,000 or whatever it is. Short videos, like an active picture. So you can just catch a little glimpse of interaction um, and not necessarily watch the whole movie. And you've you got know. some, you got some of those videos? I, I think I've got a few. Oh, that's great. Let's do it. Okay. We'll go for it. Good. All right. So let's do a share screen. So why do we clean rugs? Oh, one of the first whys is this right here. 
Can you see that, Lance? Yeah, absolutely. And being a, you know, a grandparent, I mean, that speaks volumes to me. All right, that little bugger is my nephew. And clearly, oh, there's my niece. And this is this is one of the primary reasons I clean things because I've got little kids and nieces and nephews that are crawling on my floor. And I've got a dog at home and I know what the dog has done. I know what my kids have done to my floor. And while they're not this young anymore, literally eating the carpet as they pull themselves along, it's still shoes in my house. They know what can what's this close to their face. And it's important to keep the little people in my life safe. Plus, their respiratory systems are much less developed than the rest of us. And there's that bell curve of life that from the very beginning, you're more sensitive. And at the very end, you're more sensitive, too. So not only for babies, but for seniors in, in their homes, for people who are having elective surgery, for people who are bringing children home uh, from, from freshly been born. Oh, gosh, there's all kinds of reasons. But this is why we do what we do, Dad Gummit, is because there's people, lives that are dependent on what we're doing. We're cleaning for health, my friend. That's a big deal. Well, you know, one thing that's a little different is most indoor air quality mold assessment work is measuring environments in that four to six foot breathable range. That's kind of the, the standard that most uh, industrial hygienists look at. And testing is done at because most people exist in that area breathing-wise. The children that we're looking at, they don't fall into that range. They are way below it. They're down in the more humid area. They're down where the bigger particles are collecting because they're heavier. So they're exposed to more and the carpeting. So I agree with you completely. And if people don't take their shoes off when they come in their house, that's the single most important thing you can do to maintain your carpets, by the way. We clean for a lot of Asians. And they're accustomed to taking their shoes off and their slippers, they call them. We lived in Hawaii and, and they, everybody would take their slippers off when they came into the house. Well, these people that we clean for from the Philippines and from other uh, Asian places, their carpets, I said, what are we here for? And they said to clean your carpets. Well, they look, they look fantastic. Why? Because they don't walk on them with their dead gum shoes. They take their shoes off before it makes a huge difference. Okay, let's look at some more videos. Let's have some fun today. Okay, Kate? All right. So... Uh, as a company, Petty John's, we do a lot of oriental rug washing, area rug cleaning, loose rugs, not um, to differentiate between installed carpeting. And matter of fact, there's a rug on the back right behind us in, in the screenshot that is an Afghan war rug with the tanks. Yeah, the tanks and all that. It was that was made at a special special time. We have a rug here on the wall from Tabriz in. Uh, in Iran, we got a bunch of rugs out there from Iran and from Turkey, uh, Syria, from up in the uh, four corners area of our country where the Navajo rugs are. Big deal. Let's show, show the video, see where they come from. So before you clean something, it's helpful to have an understanding of how it's made. And I like to differentiate between loose rugs and installed carpet because there's a lot of, can't you just clean my rug in my home? It's sitting on the floor just like my carpet is. Well, the construction difference between broadloom carpet that's installed in your home and a hand-knotted oriental rug or even a machine-made loose rug is wildly different. The density of the tufts, the material, the backing in and of itself is just wildly more accessible and meant to be cleaned in home on a broad room installed carpet versus a hand knotted rug which is super super dense and and a lot of that dry soling is going to get driven into the foundation and it's just not accessible from a cleaning standpoint um in the home so. While Katie's looking at these videos, let me say one thing to you, Lance. She, you used the term broadloom a while ago. Hey, hey, Robert, hang on one second. If you're gonna, guys, are gonna talk for a while, stop your share so we can see you on the big screen instead of just a little screen with your files. Okay. Oh, that's fine. So I understand. So that was just the tiny amount of um, 
background before we get into the where does the oriental rug come from or where does the hand knotted rug come from? Oh my, this is this is taken in the Luri area of Iran. There are two major nomadic tribes there, the Luris and the Kashkais. And you can see that this is a big deal in their lives. I mean, this, this was only taken just a few years ago when I had the privilege to go to Iran and, and see these sites firsthand. This is, this is a, a, something that you just don't see very much at all in our society, particularly in America, but gosh, almost anywhere. And then look who's bringing up the rear, being sure that the job's done right. Two women by George. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Wow. So we start the journey with the sheep walking on the dusty road. And we are going to go to the, the sheep have got to be shorn and the wool's cut off. It's, it's got a very high lanolin content in it. So it's got to be washed first. Once it's washed, it can be put into a dye vat and dyed almost any color imaginable. And these guys that do this, these dye masters using all kinds of natural vegetal dyes are some of the most incredibly brilliant people on earth. They're the, they are the most highly respected anywhere along this road chain. It's those people who know how to match colors and to, to get them to, what exactly what the customer's looking for, those are really huge. And, I've had the privilege of, of getting to know some of these folks and to watch how hard they work. Man, you just never see them taking breaks. So one of the uh, questions we pose to ourselves uh, before we clean a rug or anything in reality, what's it made of, what's happened to it, and what's the value? We're going to dig into the what's it made of portion right now as we've been and so people may find this awful pedantic or something kind of uh, why you show me all these things like this well there's, there's got to be an entertainment value to it of what we're seeing you're seeing some stuff that you've probably never ever seen before we're we're lifting we're lifting up the sheets and now you can see what's going on uh, in, in in between and it's it's a beautiful story of what all has been happening over the years and to, to see that this, by the way, the, the, the oldest oriental rug discovered was in the Pizrik Mountains of Russia. Uh, it dates back to 5000 BC. It is constructed exactly the way that Persian or Iranian rugs are, uh, are, are uh, constructed today. Amazing, amazing. This here, you're seeing a lady. In the Luri tribe, uh, she is uh, spinning the wool that's been cut off of the sheep, and it's all been cleaned up. And now they get big old skeins of this stuff, and it's got to be spun now into a yarn that can be used uh, in a rug. But just look at all the, 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 the times that this is being held by the human hand. Look at all the oils. Look at the soil that's on the ground. I mean, the, these things... Uh, You'll see how this is taken care of down the road. This is a beautiful process. And whether you're washing upholstery, whether you're, you're cleaning dishes, whether you're, wash, you're cleaning up a television set or whatever, you got to know how, how things are constructed. And look at these incredible ladies there in the uh, Kashka'i tribe that are actually weaving a rug on the ground. These are nomadic tribes, much like you read about in the Old Testament. And these girls are all dressed up, ready to meet their husband should he come by. And it is, I mean, literally, that's the truth. And just look at what they're doing on the ground for crying out loud. Wow. If this doesn't want to make you want to, to preserve the investment, we're, as Ron Tony says, who's the IICRC number 
one certification, by the way. Ron Tony says, we are able to preserve time spent. Oh, what other job can you do that can preserve time that's already been spent? I've got two daughters and a lot of these ladies, these people who are making rugs that you'll see in the videos, they're all women. Men are out there smoking cigars and drinking tea and trying to sell something. But no, these guys, these ladies are the ones working. And I'm by, while washing a rug properly, we're preserving the time that they spend on there. Just look. Look at the, the incredible dexterity that these ladies have got in their hands. They're taking two or three of these yarns together and they're cut. And this lady is cutting this yarn, this yarn off as she goes. That those knives are unbelievably sharp, but her fingers, no slices whatsoever. Just a beautiful, beautiful context of, of, of why we do what we do. If you don't know why you do what you do, it becomes a, it becomes a game of gossip, somebody has said. No, you've got to know why you do what you do. This is why we do it. And once the rug is it's got to be finished. So let's, let's see what's going on here. If you've ever felt a wool rug on the back of the rug, it can feel kind of scratchy and kind of rough. Uh, uh, rough. Well, in order for that not to happen, they actually set fire to the bottom of a rug. Wool, on the other hand, wool rugs do not catch a fire. That's why they are used exclusively in the airplane business. You look at the airplane that you found, the Delta, Pan Am, whatever you got. There's not Pan Am anymore, is it? No. Okay. But the, any other air, airline you fly, they all have wool carpets. Why? Because they don't catch a fire and burn. What does the burning actually do? The burning actually removes the, the scratchy stuff that's on the back of the rug. And th there's an aesthetic value to having an oriental rug. And one of them is it feels so soft and so plush under, under, under your, your hands. You can pick it up and look at the back side of it. But now after all those rugs are, are, are dealt with so many, 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 many times, they got to be cleaned somehow. Let's watch and see how these folks are washing the rug. There are six elements to any cleaning process. There's chemical action, mechanical action. This is where you're brushing your teeth or your hair, or your dishes or whatever. Chemical action, mechanical action, dwell time, temperature, rinse or dry. Those six elements. You can see that they're wetting this thing down. They're actually using laundry detergent to wash these rugs out of. And they want to wash them and get them as clean as possible. Before they... But you just look. Are they rinsing them out completely? Are they really getting those things completely clean and rinsed out? Uh, there's a question about that. Let's continue. Now, once you wash something, you got to dry it up. This is Mr. Reza Zolanbari, one of the most brilliant and, and uh, compassionate men you'll ever meet. He has Zolanbari rugs. You can look them up. And these are, you see the rocks out in, in Iran that, Sun is beating on those rocks all the time. And they've taken these rugs, they've turned them face up, and the rugs, the bottom of it, they're, what Mr. Zonabari is, is explaining, is that these rugs are drying from the bottom and from the top with the sunshine and a little bit of air. There's not very much air movement. <clears throat> Temperature, air movement, and dehumidification are the three factors that influence drying anything, whether you have a flood in your house or you're drying wet rugs. Temperature, air movement, and dehumidification. You're seeing that process. To the, plus, they're being exposed to the UV light, which is helping to deepen the colors in these yarns. They thought of everything over the thousands and thousands of years that they've been doing this. It's in the book of Judges. You can hear read it. But when you make a rug, you got to sell it. So here they are, flipping rugs. It's called flipping rugs to the public. Here's what uh, uh, that looks like. And this was taken uh, in uh, Iran or Persia, whatever you want to call it, by some of the most careful, beautiful human beings. Just look at these textiles. Look at how beautiful they are. Oh, my stars. So many hands are involved in the production of the rug before a brand new rug gets to a showroom or gets to your home um, where it's new and presumed to be clean and ready to use. And the the concept of clean, the definitive clean, uh, it's kind of vague because, hold on just one second, you'll see in this video, 
It's about two seconds away. You're going to see Oops. that that has just potentially touched a brand new item that you're going to bring into your home and your child's going to crawl across or you're going to drop a little crumb and you're going to pick it up and eat it because that was a really good blueberry muffin and you just bought the rug so it's clean. So This is actually the very first rug I ever bought. It's actually a grain bag. I bought this at the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul, Turkey. And to, be, to be able to, and what happened was that the folks used to put the grain in these bags and put the bags on top of, on the back of the horse and take them back and forth to wherever they needed to go. So this is now, fortunately, this has been cleaned. And that man that you saw in there has got a huge, huge heart, but he is unfortunately no longer with us. Uh, a dear, dear friend of our, of our rug industry, and he's no longer with us. So, but this is understanding where these come from and how they get around and how they make it into people's houses. There's a story behind every one of these rugs. There may not be a story behind a carpet, but there's almost always a story behind an oriental rug. We, we bought this rug in Ephesus on our honeymoon when we were in the Medi on the Mediterranean Sea. We bought this, the very first purchase we bought, we went downtown and bought it uh, at the, the rug shop. And now this is the first thing we ever bought as a, mar as a married couple, uh, uh, somebody would say. Or my grand, I don't wanna start crying or nothing, but my granddaddy taught me how to dance on this rug. Or this is when my brother and I used to play the hot wheels around the, the outside edges of the guard border on these rugs. All kind of stories behind them. And you can you just mentioned one about your mama a while ago. There's stories behind them all. And these are very, very real, real. Uh, a lady brought a rug into us the other, the other day, about six or eight, nine years ago, something like that. And it was a polypropylene tore up and all that. And I said, ma'am, if you'd, if you'd prefer, we could just go ahead and put it up back there. And I was pointing to the dumpster. She said, oh, no, no, no. This is the only thing my mother ever gave me. I can point to you in our shop right now. Where I, the, the two of us were crying, and we cleaned it just like we cleaned the governor's rugs, even better. This was a big deal to me. We made this just like it was. It, it belonged to Jesus himself. So that's just... You know, when you're talking about how the, the rugs were made, the care that goes into them and everything else, I mean, just like with anything that you would want to clean or repair or fix, you have to know what it's made of. You have to know how it's constructed. Otherwise, you're blindly going in there and possibly doing something to damage it, throwing bleach on it to get the dirt out. Well, that's going to take out the color, you know, or using the wrong type of uh, equipment to disassemble something. So it it's really important to understand how things are constructed, which is what you just showed us. So thank you very much for that. Whether it's a rug or whether it's your hardwood floors or anything, I know that you and I have had water damages in our home. As a matter of fact, today I'm getting all the CPB, uh, C plumbing removed from my dead gum house. So I don't want to come home to a flood. Uh, they're replacing all that stuff. Well, I've had floods in my house when we came home and it was wet and you've had floods in your house too. And to know for the, for the restoration contractor or the remediation contractor to know what it's made of before he starts just sawing into something is just really huge. You made, a, you made an excellent point, Lance. That's a beautiful point. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, let me, let me ask you a question. If you were able to talk to homeowners and business owners, what would you tell them to do to protect their rugs or floor coverings, whether it's carpet or a throw rug type of a thing, oriental rug? Oh, that is a great question. You should know the answer to some of that, Katie. Yeah, how to protect your rug? Well, I'd like it to, I like to kind of refer to the American healthcare um, standard on this one and you can kind of go one of two ways you can go preventative or you can go corrective a lot of people find it easier to just go corrective you know i'm going to eat this now and if my pants don't fit i'm either going to buy new pants or if the doctor tells me to lose weight i will um it's almost always easier 
and to your advantage to be preventative and with, cheaper and cheaper, maybe a little more expensive in the short term, always cheaper in the long term to go preventative. That means taking your vitamins, get your butt out of bed in the morning and exercise or do some sort of meditation or something and get yourself right for the day. Also preventative is imagining in the future what what's going to happen. Somebody's going to spill something. Somebody's going to find something you said so funny that their soda spews out of their nose. They're laughing so hard. Then you've got to deal with cleaning up. That's happened. That's why I said that. <laughs> well, and you're exactly right. We, we have the ability to think and to, to project ourselves into the future is really, really huge. Well, one, one of the components here that's so important is by showing people the reality of how things are done, how things are made, and how things should be. And now talking about the preventative compared to reactionary, that that is a major issue with most people today. Nobody, and I say nobody, the governments particularly don't want to spend money preventatively. They don't budget for prevention. They budget only for reactionary. Unfortunately, a lot of people are exposed to that too. A lot of people are short on funds, so they're not going to spend money to fix something that isn't a problem as yet. What you're demonstrating to us is the risk to that and how much more it costs down the road. I guess the, the easiest example for most people to understand would be driving your car for 10 years and never changing the oil. Well, it seems to be running fine. I'll leave it alone. Well, one day the engine seizes and that you know $10 can of oil just cost you $5,000 for a new engine. So, you know, it's taking care of it now before it becomes a problem is so important. Sure. I 100% agree. I highly recommend putting a protective coating on your textiles when they're new or freshly cleaned because of the simple buy yourself some time in case of a spill. Make your vacuuming more effective. You're going to vacuum anyway. You floss your teeth regularly and your dentist knows when you don't. Your rug cleaner knows when you're not vacuuming regularly. So put the protective coating on there. It makes it, it almost, it's, it, it almost extends to the point where it can save relationships in your life. Oh gosh, yes. Because at some point, your child, my child, your child might spill a chocolate milkshake on your dad's rug. And is that what your child did? I think so. I think so too. And it, even though the rug was protected, there was a very brief moment that could be, that was captured. You could feel it, the tension in the air. Had that rug not been protected, I know what it's like to spot clean a protected rug and know what it's like to spot clean an unprotected rug. It's just a lot more difficult. And I don't know what the results gonna look like, but it was a timeout. Everybody stay calm. I need a paper towel. I need a spoon. I need a little bit of water on a towel. And the milkshake scooped right up into the towel. And within honestly about two minutes worth of work, we had that rug back to pre-loss condition. And there were no hard feelings other than the milkshake, the effort put into the milkshake, which you can't help. But stuff is going to happen. But you bring up a good point. A lot of times people in there who, who are visiting with you in, in your home, they'll spill something and they'll never tell you. They'll just overlook it and hope you don't notice it or something. And now you've got some funky mess somewhere down the road that you got to deal with. Had that rug been protected properly, like you said, or at least have the knowledge of somebody that knows what they're doing in order to clean that rug or that piece of upholstery or whatever the case, those things are very, very expensive. And being able to take care of that. And that is also one of the components of indoor air quality, which is odors. And some of these odors don't show up until the humidity maybe get high in the air or something. Now it gets kind of funky. So these are, uh, these are real life situations that we, we come across with all the time. So to bring your one of your previous questions back full circle, what is what is the carpet cleaner, what does the rug cleaner even have to do with indoor air quality? I have a video, I will share my screen again, a video that's gonna kind of walk us through now that we know what a rug is made of, how it's constructed, we can look at the entire rug cleaning process and 
see what is important about the rug cleaning process and how it is critical to the indoor environment. I can pause this as needed if we get chatty about something. So this in our shop here, here's another war rug. Clearly we have a theme in my household because my husband was in the military. And this is a um, not a true Afghan war rug. It was made in Pakistan. Um, and the first, I do hate that. Let's go back. The first thing we do is inspect it just to be sure that we're all on the same page with the client because no matter what kind of service you're providing, setting the expectation with your client on the front end always makes it easier to do your job right. That's the same way it is with mold remediation or anything we're doing at, at, at any company, whether we're doing mold remediation or uh, carpet cleaning or upholstery cleaning, whatever. House painting, whatever it is. By the way, is that that's Andrew right there. That is my husband. By the way, this guy in this video is an Iraqi war veteran, a Purple Heart recipient, a man's man. He's not scared of nothing. And he happens to be my son-in-law, and I'm very, very thankful that he's part of the family. So the last little portion was the tumble duster, and this is compressed air, 125 CFM, 125, what else? PSI. PSI, man things, that's okay. And this is the dry soil removal that is critical to the, the first step of the cleaning process. Because, because it, uh, can you pause it just a second? Yep. Procter & Gamble back in the 70s did a study of what was in dirty carpets and they did a, post, a dirty upholstery because they wanted to show, they wanted to sell a product over the counter. And they discovered that about 78% of the soil that's in carpet or is dry particle soil that can be vacuumed in and taken away. The other 20% is a roughly 10% water, water, water soluble soil and solvent soluble soil, the other 10. So knowing that, we got a rug or, or your rug, your carpet care professional, whatever gets 80% of it clean by simply vacuuming or dusting it correctly and properly. Amazing how much of that. And hence, what are we doing? We're improving indoor air quality. Because if, if, if that's all we did to that rug right there, it goes back in as a much more healthy part of that customer's indoor air quality. Look at, look at all that dry particle solvent. And these are big chunks. We're not seeing the little stuff. So you see these little, the dusty, the skin cells, the things that come in off your shoes. And I, I, I think you've said in the past, if you were to only do this, you'd still get an 80 on the test, which I'd like to point out as a child was not acceptable. Oh. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a rug cleaner, I still don't think it's acceptable. So continue on. I am slightly embarrassed. That's how much came out of the rugs in my house. That's okay. So here is 1,200 gallons of naturally softened rainwater that we harvest from our roof. And we will put a rug, depending on structural integrity, um, you know, condition of the rug, and soiling. Uh, we'll go into the wash tub. A couple different factors will play a part into it. So swimming around with a little cleaning agent, the rug will release the water-soluble soils and things that can be addressed by the cleaning agent. And if there's urine in the rug, it'll spend a little more time there. Uh, this is one of the elements of the cleaning process. There's six elements to any cleaning process. Chemical action, like you saw some detergents inside that, that wash tub. Chemical action, mechanical action. This is mechanical action. You uh, brush your teeth, for instance. This is brushing your rug's teeth. Chemical action, mechanical action, dwell time. You don't stick a rug into that wash tub and then pull it right back out and give it 30, 45 minutes of dwell time. Chemical action, mechanical action, dwell time, temperature. That rug is at a certain temperature. Then uh, rinse and dry. Those six elements. You, you, if you wash your hair, you rinse it. You don't just walk out of the, back, out of the shower. No, you rinse yourself off. The same thing happens in a rug. You rinse it off. And we put now this goes into the ringer rinser to where it's rinsing a rug off. If you could stick your, yourself in there, it would be really good. That would, that would hurt. <laughs> no, it hurt, wouldn't okay. it? Okay. So. so we have a little bit of warmth to the water, not hot water, a little bit of warmth because we know that does a little better job of 
rinsing out the cleaning agents. It's going to slowly creep through this process. And on the other side of those jets is our two, those little rubber guys right there that kind of squeegee out a lot of the loose water. So That's like, just like Granny had in her wash thing in the back of, on her back porch. Yes. She kept all the National Enquirers in there, though, that, instead of washing rugs there. Oh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> and then the rest of the water is spun out in the centrifuge, which is going to spin at about 960 RPM. And it's a little faster than the Gravitron at the fair. Uh, literally liquefy you if you got into it. And 10,000 PSI is what it is. That's <laughs> that, the RPM. Yep. And then the final grooming, when you wash your hair, you comb it when you're done so that it doesn't dry all knotted and tangly. And then you dry it. So then our rug is gonna go into the dry room where we duct in hot dry air and we circulate that heat, duct out the humidity, use air movement and temperature and dehumidification to get this rug dry. Most rugs are gonna be dry in that four to eight our window because we're able to really seal it in and get it nice and warm and a very effective drying system and then the next day we'll detail any little spots that maybe didn't come out because we're solvent soluble detail the fringe if needed roll it up put it on the wall and say come get me so yep. that is our rug cleaning process and that is how you pull particulate out of a rug to make it a clean, healthy filter again. And we do the same thing with upholstery too. It's, we blow it off to get the dry particles all out of there. By the way, we've had extremely good success, even with moldy upholstery, to be able to blow it off, to, to put a disinfectant on there first, blow it off completely with 125 PSI, 125 CFM, and then wash it again thoroughly, and then blow it off again, and then test it, send it off to the lab and it comes back food grade clean. We've taken rugs that we put 15 gallons of raw untreated sewage doo-doo on those rugs, rolled them up for four days and taken them off and cleaned them and got them washed and clean. Send them to the lab up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they test all the cereal boxes and all that. And it comes back food grade clean. That's a, that's a huge, huge deal. For people that have mold in their homes or they, they have any kind of, a, of, a, of an illness or something that's causing them to have bad indoor air quality, well, we can now, my goodness, we can, we can save the, the roads. And people, there's people all across the country can do the same thing. One of the things that Katie was talking about is preventive maintenance. One of the preventive maintenance ways that you could do this is to, is to research your area and find somebody who is a, a certified rug specialist with the Association of Rug Care Specialists, ARCS. Or look, look up Normie, N-O-R-M-I, and look, at, look for a Normie professional. That guy should have done his homework enough to know who the, who the rug professionals are in his area, who the textile professionals are in his area, because none of us is good. Well, almost none of us is good at everything. Speak for yourself. Well, uh, before you before you kids start arguing, let me jump in here and say that um, you, obviously the passion is there for what you do and how you care about your your customers and and their um, property and how you take care of it. So uh, kudos for that, absolutely. Uh, we it's only, have only the way we were raised. It's only the way we were raised, Lance. Mister Miss Chapman ingrained that into my into Karen. And uh, my mom and daddy surely did the same thing for us. Uh, well, they did a good job. But we have a few minutes left. So is there anything you'd like to wrap up with or say to anybody watching this? I just want to reiterate the fact that cleaning, cleaning your textiles in your house impacts the indoor air quality of, of what, what you're breathing. Uh, um, Mr. Hoffman says that uh, these, these cleaning uh, techniques and all that are for people who like to breathe and we enjoy breathing and our customers enjoy breathing and these these rugs oh i'm glad you pointed i'm glad you put this up 
This is from Shaw Industries, by the way. I'm not screen sharing okay. right now. Can you screen share it? I can. All right. Sure can. This is important. It was said of the parson in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, but first he wrought her, and then he talked her. Well, if I'm going to sit there and tell you stuff to do, I ought to at least do it in my own dadgum house. So let's go to the next one, too. Okay, so let's talk about this, though. Okay. The first lines of defense. We always say vacuuming is one of the best ways of maintenance, but before vacuuming, what can you do to reduce or prevent the, um, the load of soiling that's going to be on your floor covering? And the three zones, as Shaw, uh, as Shaw calls it, uh, zone one, two, and three, is get the moisture off of your feet first, and then something to collect the bulk of like a scrubby bristly kind of um oh, uh, format, format. Yep. and then something to get whatever might be left on it so why does it keep going the same direction that's okay i'm sorry here this is this is my front porch and you see that i've got some uh, some rug pad that was uh, cut wrong so we use it out there that's absorbing the moisture off of the bottom of my shoes and you see that little scratchy little green rug mat. That's an AstroTurf mat. I'm going to scratch the, butter, the stuff off the bottom of my dead gum shoes. Studies have shown it takes 15 steps to remove the soil from the bottom of your shoes. So let's accelerate that, please. And we can do that. And then another thing we do is we put a, a, a nylon walk-off mat there and put our shoes over to the side so that we're not traipsing that stuff all in our house. Why? Because my wife and I breathe about 3,000 gallons of air every day, just like you and, and Andrew and your, uh, your babies don't drink quite that much. But everybody that's watching this video, you drink 3,000 gallons of air a day. And you want to get it clean as possible for your healthy indoor environment. And fortunately, we're starting them off young at Teddy Johnson. But she needs to put the phone up and not, not talk to her friends while she's doing some work, though. You know, Katie, you had spoken earlier about that whole child labor thing when you were growing up. And oh, gosh. I, no I, I see this isn't really skipping a generation. Yeah. Okay, just handcuff me now. You can go ahead. My family, all of the little ones have been obsessed with vacuum cleaners, which is funny. Is it funny? I think it's, uh, it's in our DNA. But it goes back to these things here we're talking about here, Lance, these, these cleaning for health. Research has shown that if you can if you can identify where the reservoirs or the sinks are in your house or in your office or in your car or anywhere, then you can identify the pathways that that reservoir takes to get into your lungs or into your body that a germ or a virus or a, or a, a mold spore or something would get into there. Then you can you can you can interrupt that pathway and stop that from getting into your body. This is one of the beautiful things that Dr. Gavin McGregor Skinner is teaching people to become essential cleaning professionals. And by the way, during the Corona, you remember we, we called some politician's office and told him that we cleaned the governor's rugs. And he, he said, okay, you're an essential, you're an essential cleaning professional. So we got, we got that designation early, early on. And how many times have we taken a rug and taken the ATP meter and before and after and saw, seen the re reduction in, in organic load almost non-existent? We had fun playing with that during COVID when everyone was hyper aware of ATP meters and organic load. And we tested uh, a random rug out in our shop. I think it had urine in it. So we knew it was going to have a, a decent um, organic load to begin with. And when we were done cleaning it, literally right out of the centrifuge, we groomed it, we put it on the poles like you saw in the video, did another ATP swab on it, and did one of those cartoon eye rub things, did another swipe with another test, and it said zero. We were like, did you do it right? Unbelievable. No. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I want to interrupt you here because I think you're giving away all the secrets to part two of uh, Petty John Cleaning here. So we're, we're just about out of time for this segment. So 
if we can wrap this up, maybe we'll do another segment in the near future and go into some more detail on that. Well, fortunately, this business is in our blood. My granny lived at 25 Lowry Street in Somerville, Georgia, right across from the Bigelow Sanford Rug Mill. And she babysatted all the, the children for the, the executives of that place. My uncle was a dolfer there. My, both of my aunts worked in that rug plant. And my daddy's PhD is in organic chemistry, for crying out loud. And he worked at DuPont uh, for 35 years in there as a senior research uh, uh, chemist with them and developed a lot of different uh, textiles that we we use today, as a matter of fact. Uh, and fortunately, it's in our blood, but also a respect for the people who made this rug is in our blood. And respect for the our precious customers is in our blood, too. We're not here... Uh, John Dunn says, no man is an island unto himself. We're not here by ourselves. No, we're part of the whole. And what we do impacts people's lives. And that's the beautiful thing about Normie, is that uh, Mr. Hoffman and, and you, Lance, and Roger, and all those guys, and David, and all those guys out there are just uh, are preaching this sermon over and over and over again. And it's, it's taking I think our, our society and our culture is really beginning to develop a huge appreciation for proper indoor air quality. And thank you, Lance, for what you've done and for allowing us to, to, to look under the sheets to see what's going on at Petty John's too. Well, Katie, Robert, I thank you very much for spending this time with us. Very educational. And maybe we'll do this again with a part two. Well, that'd be fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lance. Thank you, Lance. Take care.